we're walking two interdependent paths in our practice. One we can call uh, transformation, one we can call transcendence. Each one nurtures the other, each one makes the other possible. Mostly, um, spiritual seekers probably engage in, in paths of transformation, which is, a, which is a lot. It's enough to change, change the world and um, save the world. If one can accomplish a fulfilled, transformative path, spiritual path in their lives, uh, it's a huge, generous gift to themselves uh, and other other beings. If you look back in your own life to the time or times when something shook you from deep inside and and from that moment you knew you were looking for something you knew you were on some search there's a term for it in the buddhist pali language samvega which is an emotion that suddenly grasps the heart, shudders the heart, uh, and different than anything that we may have felt before, may kind of shake us out of our uh, slumber uh, and out of our assumptions. So what, what is that for you? What may have that have been for you? I mentioned, I mentioned one one of mine being when I witnessed an emotion that I, uh, of which I didn't even I didn't even know what it was, faith, uh, when I was six years old in Japan. That that did that did something that came back some some years later uh, and led to becoming a faith that I understood, a verified or confirmed faith once I entered the practice. Uh, and the second time was when I moved neighborhoods from one area and group of friends to a brand new area. It was only a couple of, really only a couple of miles away, but um, when you're 11, that, that, that can be far, especially when you change schools and whatnot. Uh, so I was in this new, new neighborhood. Uh, it was in pre-state Hawaii, so it was still agricultural land, and the population very small, less than 200,000 people on all eight islands, all eight islands that are where people live. And I, 
I clearly recollect looking up at the, these emerald green mountains, which is the southern end of this mountain range called the Ko'olaus that run from the north to the south. And then, and then out at sea, around where I was, there were a lot of empty lots, and you, got, you had views like that then, see the mountains and the sea. And then, and then everything changed, completely changed. My sense of home, which had been shifted anyway, uh, so that I, I felt I had a sense of homelessness, uh, being in a completely new, new place, new people, uh, and anything I, I had a connection with, school, um, neighborhood, even my family. All of that just seemed to vanish, and I just felt this surge of joy this unbelievable, uplifting, childlike, unbridled joy that had no reason to be there whatsoever. Um, nothing like that had ever happened before, so I said to myself, this must be important. And I should not forget this. So I remember repeating to myself like a hundred times, um, I'm 11, I'm 11, I'm 11. This is important. I'm 11, I'm 11, I'm 11. This is important. Like a mantra, until it was so ingrained in my body, in my heart, that I didn't forget it. And it came back um, some years some years later, when I entered further into this transformation path. Things like that, it doesn't, they, it, it may have been uh, a trauma for you, something quite traumatic and um, in a way this was both for me moving friend, neighborhoods and friends in school, um, and still, for no reason, this, this joy, I have no idea about what, what the connection is. It was just, it was just a shift, like a tectonic plate that's kind of slowly floating, and then, and then it makes a sudden movement or drop you know, and then we feel an earthquake on the planet. Something like that. And then I already mentioned to you that uh, thanks to Jack Kerouac, I, it was the first time I ever saw the word Dharma. Uh, and it was a completely different world than the world I, was, I lived in, in, the, in Hawaii in the 50s. Um, it spoke to me like nothing else, and I was I was so into it. You know, I, I did a, a brilliant thesis on, on it in high school, 
so good that the teacher didn't believe I wrote it. <laughs> and I said, I did. And uh, uh, I, I even went to San Francisco, to North Beach, where Kerouac and the other Beat Generation people hung out. And uh, uh, I can bring my dad in, he'll tell you, because I went with him on a business trip to San Francisco, and, and I just hung out in North Beach. You know, she believed me, finally. You know, what we're interested in, we, we do well. Uh, and so that kind of lifted me up and also dropped me into despair for the rest of high school. Because, it, you know, at 16, and when there's nothing, you know, it was before Dylan and the Beatles, and there was nothing else, there was no alternative movement there to support what I was reading. No other books except Kerouac books, Dharma bums, and stuff like that. So I felt really alone until leaving high school, and, and then going to university on the mainland at first. Then I began, and then there was the music and movements going on and the Vietnam War and, uh, and things that started to make, make sense and where this language had a place uh, and where I felt, yeah, I, I'm on some kind of path and I felt o open to some sort of spiritual path you know, I saw, I, I saw that the, the Beat Generation people had lots of connection to Zen, so I took an interest in that. And later I just researched and visited all, all contemplative traditions, East and West, that were within my reach, like on the West Coast of America, uh, anything I could find in Hawaii, and there was quite a bit, actually. Um, and that and that was the beginning for me. Uh, that some some vega, that powerful emotion that that grabs the heart, shakes us a bit, and puts us in a different direction. You know, at least shows us that there's a possibility. Makes us ask questions. This is a poem from the English poet David White called Sometimes. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere, but in this place, beginning to lead everywhere. Request to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. That can happen at a really young age. I see myself, you know, 
a few of you in here I know also began at quite really a very young age. Um, Bill, how old were you when we met? Hmm? Yeah? Yeah. Good work. Um, so how we actually decide what, what path we take up, I, I suppose it's just karma, karma and um, where we feel welcomed and uh, mirrored. And so, and actually I felt that just about everywhere I went. Um, because I felt I met really some really great people and great teachers and but it, I waited until it felt like a, a fit to, for, for whatever until I knew inside I didn't know what I was looking for I could say but I knew I would know when when I found it and so I kept I kept experimenting with different things until until I had a taste of this tradition and liked its simplicity, its silence, its inclusiveness, its um, independence, and that it wasn't this uh, it wasn't a belief system, it wasn't a dogma that you suddenly subscribe to. It's, it's pretty bare bones actually, and then you take you take the practice parts of it and utilize them to, to see for yourself. So at a certain point in in the beginning retreats that I did, actually the first retreat I did uh, was 30 days, pretty long time for someone's first retreat. Uh, but I, I was, it, it was in the for, a forest much like this in California. And, and I knew it was the right thing to do at the time. So I was really, I was camping, uh, as were most of the students. In, in that first retreat, there were clear enough moments that another aspect of this some some vega, this shaking of the heart, that brings up this this appreciation of the fleeting nature of life, how quickly life can, can come and go. And at that young age, you don't realize it. And I don't, I don't think I realized it, but it, it sounded good. <laughs> it, it sounded romantic. Oh, this life is going to be really fleeting, you know. And actually, uh, about 12 years ago, when my mom was dying, She would say quite frequently, and she was 97, she, she said, how quickly this life has, has come and was about to go. How quickly it all happened. You know, she was just a little girl on her, her parents' farm and uh, just below Big Sur, sitting on a tree, you know, on, in the six-mile walk to school. 
and she was so vivid, her memories were good, so clear at that time. And it was kind of poignant for people to hear that. Uh, and, and I felt, I felt another aspect of that in what Mahasi would call a healthy or a Dhamma fear. And, and that's the fear of, of living in spiritual slumber, of living in delusion, you know, li- living in that fabrication of how we immediately change the world, our perception of the world, which in the moment is, is felt sense, reality, exactly as it is, but we don't see it unless we're really, really mindful how quickly it just translates into this embellishment, this mental proliferation uh, of, of a world of construction that we make through memory and association, comparison, uh, and just the frame of mind that we've carried from family, community, culture, and schooling. So I, I recall in that retreat feeling that, that healthy fear and not wanting to live that way. It's so easy, you know, it's so easy to go back to that. There were so, there were so many people kind of in that 60s, early 70s movement, anti-war and um, uh, just alternative lifestyles and whatnot, who, gr- who gradually got pulled back into the, the other world, the world before that. Uh, uh, I didn't want, and I didn't want that to happen. So I, I recognize that and nurtured that healthy fear, the caution of e- easily going in in the direction certain that my family wanted me to go, and the greater community and the larger culture and so forth. Think on those things because it's they're useful. It's, Wise reflection, you know, the wise use of concepts and, and thought formations are, uh, this is an example of that, that keep, us, that keep us going. Maybe, you know, a little bit more walking. And maybe the next retreat, you know, whatever it is that motivates us to keep going, finding that intention rooted in not wanting to go back into a spiritual slumber and, and the realization that life is really short, nobody knows when, when they're taking their last breath. Transformation is, is something uh, Upandita would call, or did call, emotional intelligence. Where we take a lot of the work that that we know that we already know and have been doing the teachings, the gradual teachings of the Buddha, like dana, generosity, you know, sharing what we what we have with others, sharing our time, our energy, uh, our material possessions, with whatever we have that can be of help of help to others, and uh, and helping others. That word seva, um, serving, and Seeing, feeling our own humanity and feeling 
uh, others' suffering, that resonance with others' hurt and suffering and wanting to help, wanting to make a difference. Or feeling our own and wanting to work out <clears throat> whatever weight we carry karmically or genetically or uh, trauma-wise. We want to we want to use that to awaken. We don't want to use that to avoid, escape, and deny. Um, Brahma Vihara. Brahma Vihara um, practice and embodiment. That's this work of transformation. And it's all about making us better beings. It's about carving out uh, a more clear and pure personality. Um, understanding ourselves in each other. Brahma Viharas are relational, they're interpersonal. They're, they're always about <clears throat> ourselves in, in the context of the world of sentient beings. Uh, and all who share the same um, fragility and vulnerability and majesty and, and, and magic of being alive and however, however other beings uh, live in this world, in the animal world, in the in the human world, and maybe in the deva world, the celestial world. We we pull that in. We try and bring that in. This work of transformation through the Brahma Viharas, understanding that the, the metta is bringing out our own and others' goodness. <coughs> if we approach others in thought word or deed with metta, um, there's no question that whether they know it or not, their goodness will be nurtured. They, they will start to feel it. And even if they don't, they see that we're genuinely relating to them. Maybe they've never had that before. So it's, it's still moving to them. Still they don't May, may not believe or feel or be in touch with their own goodness at that time. But maybe at some time they will. And they'll remember. They'll remember you. They'll remember that you, you are there in a way that must have spoken to that goodness. And, and caring that, that hurting beings can feel held. And that care is real. It's a real experience, a felt experience. It, it's, uh, uh, it's not something we do because it's socially correct or the you know, proper thing to do. We do it because our hearts are moved. Our hearts are moved when it resonates with hurting beings, suffering beings. And practicing and embodying mudita is going right for our own and others' self-worth. Kind of pulling it out of the, the, uh, the muck of shame and unworthiness, uh, like the way uh, a lily comes through the mud, and when it reaches the surface and is touched by the sun, you know, opens into this beautiful blossom. That's what happens when, when, when our murita and, and you know the joy doesn't have to be like this 
kind of wild celebratory, uplifting manifestation. It, it can be like joy with equanimity, just a, a steady stream of a joyous, buoyant uh, mental formation, spoken word, bodily action, just like a chilled joy. Uh, because maybe that's what reaches people. Maybe that expression of a, the lot, the, the intense kind of joy we can experience on retreat when we're practicing mudita is overwhelming to someone, especially someone who's not in touch with their own goodness, their own value, their own worthiness. They might feel overwhelmed and just would rather shut down or turn away. Can't take it. Too, too much electricity, voltage. So just, if we're tuned that way, we, we dial it down and uh, see, feel, sense their worthiness. Uh, and our, our thoughts are there, our speech is there, our body language is there. And that draws in this interpersonal work of transformation, that draws out someone's uh, sense of worthiness, you know, out of the the, the muck of sh- of shame and inadequacy, feelings of inadequacy and not good or not good enough. And in the process, of course, it brings out our own even more. So, like many of you experience, you it's hard to start with yourself as metta. Easier to start with the person who feels like a refuge and a safe person, like the benefactor or elder, you start with them and then you feel the metta coming back at you, uh, as it did with the yogi, that I, uh, whose letter I read parts of the other day. So it doesn't matter where we start. You know, all, all those conceptual uh, imagination techniques, they're, they're centuries after the fact. They, they were developed long after the Buddha. Uh, probably at a time when they would be more helpful, when it didn't, there wasn't the same uh, spiritual energy uh, with the Buddha's physical presence and, and different techniques and talents were needed to cultivate the Brahma-viharas. So uh, that's how those were formulated. We can be as creative as we want, use any phrases or any word or any visualization. Uh, and as I said, especially with metta, and um, upeka, or equanimity, uh, we can use a, a place, a place that's special to us, too, as our, as our refuge, as our abiding upeka, equipoise anchor, our metta anchor. So we cultivate these qualities, the, these in these teachings and even the, the early aspects of Vipassana too that encourage us to practice uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's folded up in the Brahma Viharas as well. Uh, and awareness of the body because part of transformation is learning to care for our bodies. If we really truly care for our bodies, we'll also truly care for the earth and the planet and other people, other sentient beings, understand that, you know, we all need multi-levels of nurture. 
So if we have food, we'll share the food. Uh, and not just because it's tastier, we think someone's hungry, but it's actually a gift of nurture, uh, as is kindness a gift of nurture. And, and all our, our actions around others, even just silence, but if our consciousness is tuned in, we're nurturing those around us uh, in a far more profound way than we can know. Uh, once I was practicing with Sayadaw Upandita, we were at a um, retreat center that was at a Catholic nunnery in New South Wales, Australia. Uh, and I had my, my walking spot behind the, the cottage where I was staying. I'd been practicing a while, long enough, that I had a little trail in the grass. And I just sort of zoom in on it. As, as I've mentioned to a number of you, in practice mode, it's extremely helpful if we use our senses as a protective boundary. That is, a using skillful restraint. Uh, instead of looking around, where we're sure to get lost in objects, objects that are seen, and then by association and memory, we, we think about. Uh, whereas our judge, if it's other people, uh, like or dislike, or good yogi, bad yogi, you know, if we look around, we're going to get lost most of the time until we're really mindful. When we're really, really mindful, then it doesn't matter what we do. We feel the intention to look and the looking, and if we see something, we, we notice a scene, and if there's a response to what we see, it's, it's uh, lovely or not lovely, it makes the mind happy or unhappy, and so forth. Just we're aware of all of that. But in the beginning, we need so much protection, we need so much safety. So mm -hmm. the re restricted visual field, even the auditory field, we try to not go out to every sound, and label it, try to keep it close to just where sound vibrations enter the body and feel the felt sense of those vibrations. And likewise with all the senses, just you know, hold it as close as we can to ourselves. So I'm doing that and I'm focused on compassion, doing compassion. Uh, out of the corner of my eye every day, about five, this elderly, retired nun comes out. She might have been in her 90s. She walked real slow and a bit bent over. And she picked up really small sticks, smaller than this ringer. And then it take her like 10 minutes and I kind of noticed that, and thought would come up, what does she want the sticks for, you know? And then I go back to my compassion subject and keep doing the compassion. Maybe the next day I'd see her do that and think, oh, maybe it's for her stove, 
you know, keep her warm. And then the next day, it, it, it dawned on me that here's this elderly person that, you know, I'm practicing these qualities of, of caring for other beings, myself and other beings, children, elders, and, you know, all beings who need care. And here she is taking a long time just to bend over for one stick. So, you know, I break out of my trance and walk over there, and in one minute I have a huge pile of sticks for her. Far more than that she needs or can carry, so it lasted her several days. And this became a ritual over the weeks and months. I, I, I'd always have next to a gum tree, the eucalyptus tree, this pile of sticks for her. Uh, and then I'd just go back. We didn't say a word. I went back. You know, She would know what a silent retreat is. One day I'm out there, uh, and it's 5 o'clock, and I don't see her. And I start getting a little concerned, worried. You know, what happened to her? Where is she? And uh, the stick pile didn't seem to go down very far. But then I see above the stick pile, tacked to the gum tree, I see a note. And I go and get it, and it's a nice envelope. And in the envelope, it's a nice card with flower on it. And in it says, Dear friend, I will be away in Sydney until Friday. <laughs> that was it. You know? it, it, it. It took my compassion practice to a whole different level. And Friday, the sticks were twice as high. I was so happy that she came back. <laughs> it's sometimes really obvious. It's so, sometimes so right before us that someone in need and our capacity to help is it, it, so close. And all we need to do is do it. <laughs> Make the gesture. Just take that in and... And, um, and, and notice, notice how that works for you in your life. And there's always someone within our reach, just needs a little mirroring, um, need, needs to know that there's care and capacity to, to be there if needed. So this work of transformation is, continues we continue to work on ourselves, side by side with the work of, of transcendence. Transcendence, of course, is the wisdom part of our practice. We don't need to have perfected our, our sense of being before we can practice wisdom. It, they're both going along, kind of side by side. Uh, and it's really important to remember. I've often given the example of being this caught in a story once in my practice and uh, it repeated in reports to Pandita that I felt stuck with these difficult emotions. And when he saw that it was a repeating pattern, he said, side by side with a discursive mind, uh, energy concentration meditation develops side by side with the discursive, busy thinking mind, 
this work of transcendence, this wisdom awareness that we're cultivating, develops. So, so quick is the mind, right? We're, we're practicing and suddenly we're, uh, we're off in another world, back in our previous or other lives out there or years ago or off into the future planning and wherever the mind takes us. But in just a nano moment, where we can be aware of thinking, be back in the moment, be back with felt sense phenomena appearing. And then that, that goes on. And, and as we've said, we spend more time lost than connected to the present moment. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, when he said that, and I, I came back to practice and the, the whole story collapsed. And uh, the, the strong emotions, I, they were there for me to see, and, and they were impermanent. Each emotion that was so disturbing before was impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal, had nothing to do with me. You know, I think fear was one of them, and there it was, just hanging in space for just a fleeting nano moment, and gone. Like all fear is, just. Encourage, we've encouraged you to just try and get a sense of the space in between. So fear isn't this you know, one solid emotion that's continuous. It's just arising very quickly, so fast, it looks continuous, it looks solid, it looks the same. And when it does that, uh, it's, it's quite natural, uh, almost automatic, that we identify with it. I'm angry, and there's an object of the anger. They did this or they did that, and you know there's projection and blame and so forth. When that when that fabrication collapses, it's just anger, and it's just and it's impermanent, and it's dukkha, and it's not self, you know, and it vanishes, and suddenly there's just more space. It might not be over, it might be another angry moment. But once there starts to be more space, it incrementally grows. So there's just spaciousness around this particular difficult emotion, especially if it's like a karmic knot. It will repeat itself, a different anger. Every moment is different. We never experience the same sensation or emotion or thought twice. It's always different. Different causes and conditions come together, uh, and there's a patterning around these, this dhamma pain that we call karmic knots, uh, so that th there's similar emotions that arise and similar stories that might uh, evolve or fabricate around it. But when we look right at it, it's it's different. Just an, it's another moment, another just anger, passing away, falling away. Uh, just fear, falling away. Uh, just calm, appearing, existing, and vanishing. Restlessness, appearing, existing, vanishing. Uh, and this is, this is when we start to engage this transcendent work. This is where wisdom awareness begins to uh, take over the, the feeling that often comes in practice that 
we just keep letting go, keep letting go. That's the definition, really, of meditation, just keep letting go. And we feel picked up by the practice, the way a, a surfer feels picked up by a wave. Just, just using, just leaning back a bit and then going forward with the board in front of the wave. The timing is right, because you've done it a thousand times. Uh, and that's all it, that's all it takes. And, and then the, the wave does all the work. The practice does all our work. So we've cultivated the momentum by you know, getting up, coming to the hall, uh, stretching as much as we can to, do the, to follow the form. If you follow the form really closely, you'll benefit. You benefit the best. That's why there's a form at first. If you really follow the form, then when the form starts to naturally fall away, you, you feel all the benefits. You, you feel the precision of your awareness and the timing and connecting, the connection. And the inside awareness just starts to stream by itself, not by anything we do. Uh, and the little nudges of correcting error just also, it's like, it's like the surfer when you know, the wave is starting to build up, the, the lip might be coming quite close to the surfer's head, but she just, she just ducks a little bit and torques her body a bit and comes out in front of the lip and makes the wave. It's the same, the same in, in practice. We try to, out of respect for ourselves and others, uh, and the teachers just do the form. If you just followed it, then within a very short period of time, you would feel the practice holding you up, carrying you, effort becoming more and more effortless, and, and uh, insight awareness beginning to clear uh, the fog in front of us just quite naturally. This morning we were talking about discouragement, frustration, and uh, Michelle labeled it as, as, as doubt. Doubt is often like a cloud cluster. And it, it hides. It hides other components that, that hold it up keep it in, in a cluster. You know, doubt is this, uh, it, it's meant to, to muddy the waters uh, and to fog so that we can't, to fog our, our view so we can't see clearly, can't see into the depths. But it's held together by these component parts. So um, it, it's often really difficult, if not nearly impossible, to directly recognize and work with the emotion of doubt. It's hard, because, since it, it is the nature of doubt to confuse and, and uh, muddy and fog up and sort of make what appears uh, look like something else. So the, the strategy would be to just find one of those component parts of that, cl of that cluster, that doubt cluster. I think discouragement came up. So if 
we were to just to pick up discouragement, that is, recognize discouragement, uh, and see if you could feel the footprints of discouragement as sensations in the body, locate it, anchor there, feel those sensations, um, and, and notice discouragement. Name it if you need, label it if you need to, otherwise just feel the emotion quite directly. Um, see if you can feel, the, the, at least if the sensations themselves are changing, and if you feel the sensations changing, see if you notice that, that the discouragement itself is arising and passing. You know, maybe not at first, maybe take a few times to, to start seeing that. Uh, seeing if it's pleasant or unpleasant, you know, is it dukkha or, or sukha? Uh, unhappy or, or happy state? Usually it's an unhappy state. And, uh, and then just see, is, is it just doubt or does it seem like, uh, or just discouragement? Or does it seem like my discouragement? Does it seem like there's identification? And then try and look again more closely at its nature, its sensations, its feeling tone, and so forth, and until we can see just discouragement. And then another component might be disappointment, might be despair, might be anguish, might be desire or longing for something else to happen. Each of those are held together uh, by this cloud cluster, but as you peel it away, then uh, the doubt is more and more exposed until there's, there's nothing but a, just a semblance of the doubt hindrance remaining. You know, and it just evaporates like clouds do. You, you take away the supporting components of it and, and it can't last. The opposite of doubt is, is, is faith is confidence uh, and the fruits of, of, of faith or confidence are, are uh, clarity. So you, you pull up something that inspires you. you, you try to, if it's continuing, try to think of something that, you know, what brought you to practice in, in, in the first place? Uh, you've been practicing seven years, eight years, and why? Why have you kept practicing? And you know, what's moved you, or what is? What was your some vague moment? What inspired you? Consider that, or consider a, a short dhamma uh, discourse, or a phrase, or a poem. Or just reflect on anything that will lift you up, bring that inspiration in Asia. That, reflect a lot on, on devas, celestial beings, source of inspiration, uh, particularly because they, it's said they love to come around retreats and it soak up the metta, soak up the compassion, soak up the mudita, you know, celebrate with us, supposedly support us. And it's not unusual for people to dream of or feel or even report seeing these uh, transparent deva beings. They look like us, but they're just bodies of light and don't have pain, don't have sorrow. 
they feed on joy. <laughs> That's pretty inspiring. Um, Upandita gave an example of of how we experience a reality in the moment is a felt sense like seeing, hearing, and so forth. And the example he used, he had a matchbox and he, and he took a, a, a match stick out and on the side of the matchbox you know, there's that sulfurous sandpaper and and he said, you know, with the match, this is the, this is called, this is the striker. And the striker is like the light that enters the body, the sound vibrations that enters the body, the fragrance, the flavor, the elements, earth, water, fire, air, elements that, that touch the body. And then the side, the matchbox side, uh, or in this case, uh, the, the bell is the receptor that is received by the the striker, the imprint of the of the sense experience. And the moment of contact, there's ignition that is the flame of consciousness. So it just happens like that, moment to moment, and that that's another way of. Considering ourselves, like just these six six sense door consciousnesses, moment to moment to moment. That every, every moment of experience is the same as a moment of consciousness. So, hearing consciousness. Now, when we first hear that, the mind might turn that initial felt sense reality in, into a conceptual association bell. And then, but as we get more mindful, it might be side by side. Sometimes the thought or image of the bell, sometimes the sound vibration. And those times when we're really deeply within ourselves and attuned, at awareness at all the six sense doors and just present there, that receptive awareness. Nothing need be said. It's just felt sense, sound, vibration. And the same is continuously happening at all the senses. For the, for the mind door, the mind base, it's touched by a thought formation. It's uh, often so subtle that we don't see it. Uh, Sometimes when we're practicing, I'm quite concentrated, uh, and we have a sense of, of a thought that's about to arise, like a bubble in, in the stream arising from the, from the bottom. And, and we watch the mind incline. We're aware of in, intention to connect, to pick up that thought. 
But intention is impermanent too, impersonal, impermanent. And it's arising and passing. But by watching intentions, they come and go. And being really mindful, we don't pick up the thought. Or we don't pick up the anger. Or the disappointment, the fear, the sorrow, the grief. You don't pick it up. Uh, there's that much space. There's just that tremendous space of the present moment, uh, which is why we, we create these retreat containers and uh, create, you know, form. We adjust the form to each individual yogi accordingly, so it works the best for them. Uh, some do better at times, sitting longer or sitting shorter, walking longer, walking shorter, standing more, you know, standing less. Uh, there are monasteries in, in Burma where they emphasize, depending on often the teacher, just walking or standing. Um, and uh, a, a friend of ours, a monk, Burmese monk, Uzinji, we call him, uh, he, I was asking him about very these other monasteries in the far reaches of Burma. And he told me about this one where they mainly do walking. And I said, well, Uzinji, how long do they walk? And he said, a long time. And I said, I know, but like how long? <laughs> and he says, well, I have a book. So he goes and he gives me the book. And it's all in Burmese. I say, Uzinji, I can't read it. <laughs> so he takes it and he pages through it and um, and he says, oh, well here the monk walks for two days. <laughs> and so I had him read more, you know. And generally it was more or less like we do here, you know. They walk for an hour or so and then maybe they stand or sit a, a, a little while. But they the emphasis is is in the walking, because that's what worked for the abbot in that in that particular case. Um, in another place, it was lying, lying down and standing. A colleague of Mahasi Sayadaw's, because of physical injuries, emotional injuries, uh, and the disease of the body. So, so he practiced. So he could stand for hours if he wanted to, or lay for hours if he wanted to, perfectly mindful. We, we try to give a balance, emphasize you know, all the postures, uh, and then tune in to each person. What, what do you need, or what really works? What really works for you? Like when you come to the end of your tethers in the hall, we encourage people to. Sometimes it's really helpful just to go from sitting to, to standing, to a standing posture. And it's like a reset. We see things in a whole new way, a whole different way. It's, a, it's this... Wisdom awareness that, that 
that strengthens the work of transformation. In transformation, we are trying to, to create a strong, healthy sense of ourselves. The stronger a healthy sense of ourself is, uh, the more selfless we are in that work of transformation. And, and then it's just an effortless, an effortless move into the transcendent work. You know, when we start to feel that, that selfless nature, it means that we identify less and less with experience, with our experience. And then we take up a practice and, and we, we watch the body, and the mind, the emotions come and go. And the attunement to it is so much, it's so natural, it's so organic because of the work of transformation that we're doing at other times, you know, side by side, either here in retreat or, you know, when we're back at home, this, our daily life practice, doing our best. The stronger our, our sense of self, the more, the more selfless we are and the more, the more we cultivate this wisdom awareness through the transcendence, the wisdom, seen impermanence in everything, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. Uh, nothing lasts more than a, a nano moment. And all conditioned phenomena are unreliable because of their nature of transience, transience and, and therefore not to be clung to. Uh, happiness can't be found in them. And where in all this changing phenomena is there any controlling entity? You know, it's this, it's it's that nature that we just see from deeper and deeper levels and angles and clarity. Each time, loosen loosens a little more of our attachments. And when the, that wisdom awareness is really strong. We have these breakthrough insights that you know give us a huge boost on, on the path, uh, and it's like some of our habits can fall away just from the insights, let alone um, awakenings like uh, touching touching the unconditioned, which permanently removes some of the hindrances and weakens the attachment and anger qualities you know you know and again and again we do that they it, it's said when one reaches that third stage like um, reputedly deepama was free from attachment and aversion then it, they say the metta practice really helps really helps um, propel one toward that complete freedom that she, she longed for. So all, you know, all along the way, metta and the other Brah, Brahma Viharas act as these catalysts that feed and move us further, further along, and help us do this work. And it can, you know, at a certain point, it, it's... It's the only work there is. It's the only thing that we can really do that feels meaningful, regardless of uh, 
what our what we might do in our daytime jobs, whether we have work jobs or retired, really doesn't matter. But you know, to to do it like it's like it's play, to do the work like it's play. This man who lived with Michelle and I um, when he was 87, his name was Paul Reps, and he had been doing this inner work since he was 16, so like for previous 70 years. And so he lived with us for a year in Honolulu. Uh, and he was so playful about everything that he'd go to the store and and he would you know, buy avocados and papaya grapes. He, he, he liked those things. He didn't like when you put it on, when the clerk put it on the scale and, and a voice would say how much it weighed and how much it cost. He hated that. So he kept asking if there was a way to turn that off. You know, or he said, He'd say, oh, I think it, this weighs six ounces, so it should only cost this much, you know. But they would keep putting it on, they'd keep putting it on and weighing it, you know. And clearly his purpose was making a connection with the clerk and making her smile and laugh or, of course, maybe be frustrated at first. So it wasn't, his strategy wasn't working, so once, finally he came through, and handed her one grape. <laughs> and it didn't register. <laughs> and he came back to the house and, and he, he also didn't like climbing the stairs, those, those walkways over the highway. So he would just wait until there's no cars <laughs> and cross the street. And, when he came home, he'd say, he'd say, I saved my own life. He said, really, reps, what'd you do? He says, I crossed the highway. <laughs> I crossed the highway alone, you know. And then a, a, a perfect example of joy and mindfulness together in any moment was when he, he He'd give his uh, classes on a Sunday, and he was really popular and famous, so there'd be like 50 people jammed into the studio uh, at the end of the house where he was living. And on Thursday, he'd come to listen to uh, my talk. I had just returned from my time as a monk in Burma. And he was really genuinely, genuinely interested in Vipassana. In fact, he, he wrote a, a book about it, uh, actually, six short books that he called Six Books in a Bag, because he, he put all six of them in, in a manila envelope, and, and we had to, you know, write the title out on the front and everything, and our daughter, Chandra, was selling them with lemonade on, <laughs> on the edge of our driveway. Anyway, he'd come in, listen to the talk, and then uh, he'd sit for 33 minutes, that was his limit, and go back into his room and then come back after our 45 minutes that was finished to listen to the talk. 
Uh, and so this one time, uh, giving the talk, it was his 33 minutes were up, so he was going to his studio, probably for grapes and avocado and bananas. <laughs> Uh, and he got up and he had this folding lawn chair and he started to fall, tripping, tripped on the coffee table. And he used the folding lawn chair to catch his fall, but the lawn chair was folding. So he kept falling. And so he spun around and grabbed onto the swinging kitchen door. But it swings. So. <laughs> He went swinging in the kitchen, pulling his folding lawn chair, which got <laughs> caught in, in the, all the chains that were hanging the pots over the sink. And the, the chair got caught in the chains, and the pots and pans were falling. And then he crashed on the floor. And none of us knew this, but Chanja, who was eight, was in there having a, a, a cookies and, and juice party. It crashed right into them. And we were all in kind of in horror, you know? It's like watching a slow motion disaster. And we hear this, oh my God, I've fallen into a party. <laughs> That's our work. Fall mindfully into a party and and um, connect with our, the clerks at the shops, connect with the bus driver, connect with the, whoever it is that you're with, that whether you know them or not, finding a way of connection. Um, the, the Buddha said that whatever is felt is dukkha. You know, which means pretty much everything is dukkha. Everything is difficult. We're up against that all the time. Um, th there's one thing that's not felt, and, and that's not dukkha, and that's nibbana. Nibbana is real. Um, but it's not experience. Experience rises and passes. Nibbana doesn't rise, so it doesn't pass. It doesn't die because it's not born. And it, it doesn't deconstruct because it's not constructed. It's not manifested. It just is. Uh, and our, our work is by way of keeping our house clean for a guest whose arrival we don't know when will be. Um, so we do the we do the transformation work and we do the transcendent work, and both of them better our lives uh, immensely, beautifully, and they make they make us beautiful human beings. Uh, and we also have this vision from the transcend work of transcendence. We do the work of transcendence because we we recognize there's more than life and death. We recognize that there's more than the personality. There's something that's transpersonal. We just know it. And, and more than arising and passing, more than birth and, and death, as Michelle was saying last night, 
and, and so we're, we're, we're patient. And as the Buddha said, patience is the path to Nibbana. Nibbana is when greed, hatred, delusion are extinguished, are, are, are put out. I'll, I'll just end with this description of um, to understand the, the consciousness of an arahant, a woman or man who's liberated. It's like a, a ray of sunlight passing through the window of a room without an imposing, opposing wall. The ray does not land anywhere. Just sit with that for a moment. ray of sunlight passing through the window of a room without an opposing wall. The ray does not land anywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate